Hello. Welcome to Electrocast. Episode 8, Data Centers, with Jake Feezy. Released May 2021. Hello, welcome to episode 8 of Electrocast. Today we've got Jake Feezy joining us. Um, he's Electronic Support Manager from We Are HA. Hi Jake, how are you doing? Hey, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm good, thanks, yeah. Uh, how's things been how's been going through COVID? You all back in the office? Yeah, we, we've been, um, we took a little bit of time out uh, when everything sort of first went locked down and we, we worked remotely. Um, we've got various processes and things in place that mean that we are prepared to work from wherever wherever we might be. Um, but we've been uh, we've been back in the office um, with a little bit of remote working um, since uh, since sort of Christmas time really yeah so after the Christmas break we sort of started to to trickle back in some of us still work from home the odd day of the week but um, it's more of a convenience thing more than anything we've got yeah. we've got a pretty well sized office so uh, we can you know keep a door open keep the windows open and work as sit, normal yeah sit sort of three or four meters apart still so. Um, so there's, yeah, there's a good amount of space in here for us all to be working safely. And it's a bit easier when we're all in the office. You know, we're a, we're a support team supporting live clients and live issues. So it's a bit nicer to be able to talk and and uh, communicate. Um, yeah. Work not just team. through Slack. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what is We Are HA? What, what sort of things do you do? And what's your job all there as engineering manager? We do um, web hosting. So it's kind of like if, if uh, the way I describe it is, is if you were... If you wanted a website, for example, you'd go to a, an agency or you might build your own website. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, of course, uh, you need to put that website somewhere to for other people to be able to get it. It's usually on a, on a web server. Well, it's always on a web server. Um, we're the guys that have infrastructure in a data, data center. We manage all that infrastructure. And then on top of that, we put uh, VMs and then we essentially rent those VMs out to, to clients. Oh, right. um, and we do all the sort of setup, the administration, um we've got a bunch of tools that keep it keep it safe keep it secure keep it running well um and yeah we do all, all the admin on that uh, we also do a little bit of sort of public cloud stuff so we have an aws engineer who deals with some a uh, couple of projects where he'll architect and um set up and maintain and support sort of aws um aws systems so for those listening um aws is as, uh, as Amazon Web Services. Cool, cool. Uh, and in case you didn't know, a VM is a virtual machine. <laughs> yeah, just just big and sure. <laughs> yeah, I realized I used a, a bunch of uh, acronyms. No, no, um, you're all right. If there's anything that I say that sounds like um, a made-up word or, or something like that, then uh, just ask me to clarify and I'll happily do so. Yeah, no worries, no worries. So what's your role uh, as um, engineering support manager? Are you the, um, the brains behind the team looking after everything or...? Um, I, well, my, my CTO, so my boss is, is the brains. Um, he, uh, he's built a lot of the systems we've got here. My, my role is keeping the support going. Um, we do a little bit of essentially everyone here or everyone that's on the technical side of things. We're all kind of DevOps engineers, just of marrying things. Uh, when I was at uni, I'd never heard of that term. Um, it's basically doing a little bit of development and, and some operational support stuff. So we all kind of do. Uh, a lot of support work. My job is mostly mostly just supporting clients, um, you know, answering tickets uh, that come in, uh, making changes as as they need it. Uh, yeah. Often pro- often providing sort of consultation stuff, so suggesting what changes might be best to do. Um, and then the manager side of that is obviously is obviously managing the team who who also do the same thing. Um, 
we've just recently taken on a couple of new engineers so our team is is growing as the as the businesses is growing as well no that's good you, you, you joined know. early on did you um the business has been going for years actually um it's not it's a small business but you know not every small business is a startup um everyone when i first started everyone was like oh jake's working at a startup but uh no it's, it's just a smaller business the business itself has been going for nearly 10 years now um and i started about two and a half yeah two and a half years ago um and yeah it's kind of changed shape shape quite a lot um myself and my colleague nigel we both started at the same time pretty much our first sort of career technical job out of uni um and uh yeah we sort of really jumped into it with both feet and and the the sort of team that we're in has meshed meshed really meshed really well together um and the the whole organization is growing quite a lot and and matured quite a lot in the in the time we've been here so oh very nice very nice so you mentioned you went to uni there um did you choose university as your main career path there to become an engineer or were you looking at other options from the start yeah i think i was always when i was in god a long time ago now when i was in uh, like sixth form college um you know i was quite academically focused uh rather than sort of being um like a you know i was never really going to be a tradesman um just wasn't wasn't really in my in my wheelhouse um yeah you know i had mates who were who were great at, at fixing things and building stuff and and doing that kind of stuff but i was always sort of better at, better at the academia stuff so you was always always going to be the path i took um strongly considered doing something like physics um decided that engineering might be more uh might be better for me because it's it's a bit more um application based you know rather than just figuring out how stuff works physics you sort of figuring out how to use those things yeah use those things to your advantage and and make stuff work um yeah so i did went off and did uh did um electronic engineering at york uh with uh when i did my course it was electronic engineering with music tech systems oh okay right i know a bunch of guys doing that yeah i kind of uh whilst i was on the course i i found the music tech stuff super interesting but it was always more of like a hobby interest um, right, so right. I kind of, in the academic side of things, I kind of veered away from it a little bit and focused more on the uh, the core streams. So why did you choose to do music tech from the start then? Was it just because it was an interest and you're interested to know more about? Yeah, really interested in music. Uh, sound in general is, well, is still really interesting. Um, a lot of the courses that I did whilst I was at uni as part of the music tech stream were super interesting, you know, learning about like binaural audio and, and how... Um, <laughs> just basically two channel audio how your ears work right right, um, right. yeah so, yeah uh, and you know things like how uh, how how uh, a very physical thing like sound can be translated into into digital stuff you know hmm. very few people listen to sound without it becoming digital first even if you're listening to a record on most modern record players it's probably going through some sort of digital circuitry before it's put out into a back into sound um yeah learning like the maths and stuff of that was was super interesting but um i sort of realized whilst i was on in my university career that it was uh more of a hobbyist interest i think than uh, there so you didn't consider taking it further not really um especially when i started looking at potential jobs in like the music tech industry um if you're involved i I realized not necessarily there's there's a lot a lot available um there's a lot of competition for those jobs uh because you know a lot of people 
a lot of engineers are very passionate about that kind of thing. Um, and I think my my ability and passion weren't quite at the same level as the other people at those jobs. Right. Um, you, you know, some of the people that do things like uh, speaker design and high and like um, amplifier design, like that, you know, they're, they're so so passionate about what they do and so intelligent um and their, their skills are so sort of the skill set in that area is, is, is incredible you know I, I, quite a few people that i went to uni with obviously I, I now are in that kind of field because i was yeah. on that stream and like they're um it, you know it's a lot of uh, like analog um some very interesting digital stuff um and that's that never really never really worked that well for me um I really found a lot of the digital stuff interesting. Um, my brain seems to be that that sort of way inclined rather than the analog stuff. It always seemed like wizardry. Yeah. Um, some of the like some of the uh, some of the analog lecturers at uni and some of the people who are great at analog stuff. It's like how how do you get these results? Like, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand yeah, they just look at it from. and know, don't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, again, it's stuff that I find interesting now more as a as a hobby than a. Uh, um, sort of an interest as, a, as opposed to like a career thing yeah, yeah of course. The, uh, all the sysadmin stuff that i do now seems to be seems to work well <laughs> through my brain anyway <laughs> oh, of course and as long as you enjoy it there's no point in getting yourself stuck doing something that you don't enjoy i suppose or something that's too hard yeah that the whole hard. that whole world seemed quite competitive as well um i mean you know most careers are fairly competitive but um yeah so. engineers are engineers <laughs> yeah Oh, exactly. So, um, you when you were there, did you do the masters, or were you just on the the BNG? Yeah, so I did a masters with a year in industry. Okay. Um, I first got onto the course just as the as the BNG, um, and then uh, basically just bumped myself up onto the masters at the end of my first year. Oh, I see. I see. I mean, like yeah. it sounds bad when you say it's just a BNG because I say it too, but it yeah. it's not it's not invaluable. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely not. No, um, I mean the two the two new engineers that we've got starting with us are have got BNGs. They from York as well. They're actually from York St John. Ah, oh, right, right, right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, steady away. Got a couple here. Got a couple here from from YSJ, and they're they're all well. I'm hoping that they're all going to be great at their jobs. <laughs> Well, fingers crossed for them, fingers crossed. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so your placement year then, where did you do your placement year? So I was down um, down in Swindon, um, which is not the nicest place in the world. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's very in- industrial. Um, <laughs> and I was working at working at Intel as a, uh, my, my job role was technical sales engineer, technical, technical marketing engineer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, which sounds like someone's gone. Let's just throw some words at this job title. Um, and it was an interesting position to be in because officially we were part of both the engineering teams and also part of the sales teams. Hmm. Um, and essentially, what we were doing is we were helping Intel's big clients, like Dell, Fujitsu, um, you know, the people who build the motherboards for servers. Hmm. Um, we were helping them finish off their their designs so that they'd work with the Intel CPUs um, and the Intel silicon. Okay. <clears throat> uh, so it's kind of like an in, uh, integration engineer, uh, like basically figuring out, figuring out and resolving uh, interoperability problems. So obviously, you know, motherboard, a server motherboard specific, 
particularly are crazy complex. There's so much stuff going on. Um, <laughs> you know, they're like seven, somewhere between seven and 12 layers thick with all kinds of crazy stuff happening. Hmm. Um, and, a, and a million and one comp components all, they all have to work really well together to stop a system from crashing. Yeah, um, definitely. <laughs> yeah, so uh, these things are crazy complicated with all kinds of weird problems. And yeah, we were kind of helping. We were working with the external client, which is obviously why we're part of like the sales, mm -hmm. sales, t sales tier, um, but also doing quite in-depth engineering. Hence, being sort of like a leg in both. Um, which, as as part of that team, gave some really interesting opportunities because the team had a lot of contacts over both of those big parts of that. What is a huge organization? Yeah, um, definitely. I think when when I was there, it was about one hundred and twenty thousand people. In, in, in working at Intel um, across the globe. So, you know, you're talking to people who are working in uh, like China and Japan and Germany and America um, and Ireland as well. Uh, occasionally going to see people in, in those places as well. You know, we went and provided some training to some engineers in Germany, which was cool. That's um, amazing, really. Yeah, yeah. Did some trade shows in Germany and, and a couple of trade shows in London. Uh, took a trip across to Ireland to to have a tour around one of the uh, silicon factories there so yeah i mean it gave some great opportunities but was a bit confusing as an engineer to jump in and try to, to figure everything. out exactly what it is you were doing and working with these systems that are so unbelievably complicated <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah so what kind of um, stuff was it that you were working on then i mean you can't say specifically but like is it working register level on things or was it working like design capacitors kind of level yeah so it wasn't it wasn't any design um it was it was as i say sort of sort of determining the root problems with with interoperability stuff um so you know we occasionally would go in and, and look at what was happening at register level um often it would be sort of debugging um microcode which is what the cpu runs sort of to boot itself up before things like uh, bios starts running yeah, yeah. um bare bones yeah yes yeah, super bare bones yeah uh, occasionally would well regularly would have stuff running without you know without even an operating system plugged in uh, like without any drives plugged in and yeah sort of stepping through um a cpu's microcode and doing things like seeing which which cpu core is doing what what it's getting from memory and stuff like that um and it, that was absolutely is fascinating you know as a, as a as someone who'd only done three years of uni to be looking at these um super complicated uh you know multi-core uh, cpus and how they actually go from being turned off you know completely dormant to running uh, servers is it was really really interesting yeah um, there's no magic is there it is it's actually moving numbers around like that's all it's doing yeah 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 absolutely so you know yeah, it's, uh, it's just very interesting, but very complicated, and I can remember very little of it. <laughs> <laughs> but that was valuable, though, do you think, as an experience? Because you've moved into web services yourself, so it must have stuck with you. Yeah, it's, um, it was very different to what I'm doing now. Um, it was really interesting, um, and I certainly learned quite a lot whilst I was there. Hmm. Um, that kind of helped me in my last year of uni, because I did it, um, yeah, I did it three years at uni took my fourth year in, in uh, industry and then came back to do my master's year. Right. Um, yeah, some of the stuff I learned there certainly helped, um, specifically with my final year project as well, which was doing sort of multi-core stuff. Um, 
and sort of looking at doing quite bare bones C programming on many core CPUs. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. So yeah, you, you said that you worked with lots of people there. Um, and I know as a student, networking is really important. Um, did you keep contact with the people that you worked with? You said that you worked with, like, well, potentially worked with hundreds and hundreds of people, you know, so that they're in, in your grasp there. Has that helped you in any way as, as a student moving out or? Yeah, not, not really. I've got, uh, I, you know, I'm still sort of linked to those people on LinkedIn um, and a few of them on, on Facebook and stuff as well. You know, the guys that I was working in a direct team with, hmm. um, I'm, I'm still, you know, still sort of uh, interact with them on Facebook, you know, like a picture, that kind of thing. And I'm sure if I popped up and said hello, they'd, they'd, they'd quite gladly go out for a pint with me kind of thing. Yeah. Um, people in those uh, if i think if i went looking for a job they'd certainly help um and be happy to help you know i got on really well and there was really really nice guys when i left left intel um at my as, as the as the intern hmm. um they they you know they said if you want a job when you finish uni we'll we'll certainly be able to find something for you um probably with either within within that team or within a different team um hmm. unfortunately i didn't really enjoy my time a huge amount um whilst i was there not so much for the job just i didn't really enjoy living in swindon um <laughs> yeah it's it was it's fine as a town um but it's uh, all my friends and family are all based up in the north and swindon's obviously that well far down south um on the m4 corridor and it's it's connections with like bristol and london are great but to I'd get them really off you, you've got to spend like a full day traveling and it was it was just really difficult, um, and I don't think I'd want to work down uh, in, in Swindon again, um, just because yeah. of the sort of challenges of seeing my, my friends and family and, and stuff like that. Yeah, um, of course. Yeah. I suppose it's, it's a learned thing, though, isn't it? You know, like, you, like, I wouldn't know that I wouldn't like working. No, I'd have a guess, but I, I don't know what it's like in Swindon, like, working and living. But now, like the experience of there being there for a year, like quite flexible experience, I suppose, is good for you there. Yeah. And, you know, not to yeah. go back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's the, the one thing I learned is that I uh, I don't want to live in Swindon. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think if I if I if someone was like, we'll pay you a load of money to work in Swindon, I'd probably live in probably live in Bristol, like a couple of the interns, um, my you know the, the peers that I was working there with did, and they commuted in. Uh, you know, commuting in on the on the M4 or commuting on the train was, was super easy um, from Bristol, so probably wouldn't wouldn't be a terrible thing to do, and you know it'd be great to live in a place like Bristol. Yeah, it's a hub, really, isn't it? Whereas Swindon, yeah. less so. <laughs> it's it's a hub for a lot of tech. A lot of big companies, I think, are based in Swindon because it's got really good links to London and Bristol, but it is not in either of those cities, so it's a lot cheaper. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's good to know. That was good to know, isn't it? Um, yeah, yeah. You mentioned you went to a lot of trade fairs and stuff, like with the in, like with the company on the internship. Have you been to mm-hmm. any trade fairs outside of the internship, or like, is, are they beneficial? Um, we actually went to trade shows as a presenter. Um, so I was working on on the Intel stall stall stall. Um, yeah, I was working on the Intel side of things, presenting Intel technologies to prospective clients. Um. And it was really interesting being on that side of things, you know, all the presenters and stuff did things like big nights out afterwards, you know, big celebrations held by the, um, by the organizer of the, uh, of the tech fairs. Um, and they were interesting experiences. 
for sure. Um, right. I suppose you'll imagine... never have that side of it again, will you, really? Uh, you're hunting. Oh, possibly. <laughs> um, <laughs> right, right. I think in my current role, I'm much more likely to be going to a tech fair as, as, the, as, the, uh, as the buyer rather than the seller. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that presents different opportunities. You know, it's, it's a definitely completely different side of the coin. You know, it's like being a, a, a customer versus the person who works in the shop. Um, it's interesting to work in the shop because you get to see what happens behind the scenes and you get to go into the warehouse and, and do all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it's nice to be the, the person who's doing the buying because you get to, you know, you're, you're the client, so someone's <laughs> selling to you and, and, and treating you nice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're being catered to. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Oh, so what was your finally a project then? You you touched on just there that it was uh, like low level C programming, but what, what was it that you did? I, I was doing a biologically inspired algorithms for uh, many core systems. Um, <laughs> yeah, that face that you're pulling now, blank, confused, scared. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's that's what most people. That's the that's the response I get from pretty much anyone. Um, right, right. Yeah, I uh, in in. Um, either my third year or the first like term of my final year, we did a, we did a bio-inspired algorithms course, okay. um, which was, which was fascinating, you know, things like how do big biological systems um, organize themselves without any managers, basically, you know, uh, the example that I used was um, uh, an ant colony, mm-hmm. you know, they've got like a queen and stuff, but they don't have, you know, they, they're not like separated out into, into groups and then managed and, you know, you know, have one ant, selling a bunch of other ants to go and get some food and another ant saying, go and build some tunnels over there, that kind of thing. Yeah, it's not the um, standard management model, is it, from work? <laughs> yeah, they just, you know, they respond to various stimuli and go and do a job that hmm. those stimuli dictate they need to do, you know. Um, for example, if they feel like, if they see that there's not enough food in, in their food store, they'll go and get some food. Um, if they um, realise there's not ants doing various jobs because of various stimuli, they'll respond to that and and then go and do the job that needs to be done right um and you know you might have ants that specialize in in one thing over another so you'll see that they respond more strongly to a specific stimuli than another ant might hmm. but it's like instinctual yeah yeah they're, they're responding to stimuli essentially so um if you've done anything on neural networks um Nope. <laughs> okay. uh, it's, it's kind of similar to that you know you have um, neurons firing and eventually you reach a threshold level that causes the next neuron to fire it's kind of like if you're well i mean you know we all do it right we do uh, you know if we're hungry we eat some food if we're tired yeah. we sleep if we're cold we put on some clothes um yeah. we're responding to various various stimuli and then doing a job uh to to do to to um yeah doing the job in response to that yeah yeah, yeah. um and essentially, the ants are doing the same thing, but on a massive scale, you know, millions of ants in a single colony. Um, and they build these crazy big structures, you know, huge ant nests and achieve all kinds of incredible things. Um, yeah, just out of all, all by following quite basic, um, you know, a single ant is is useless. What's a single ant going to do? Probably get squashed. True. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. you get you get millions of them and they do they can do incredible things. And, and that's the kind of thing that we're bringing. That the idea is with that project to look at how you can take a very simple core, like a very simple com- compute core hmm. that can maybe do something really, really simple by itself. And if you had like a single core system with, with just one of these really basic cores, it'd be useless. But then if you scaled up to like hundreds or thousands, 
it might be able to achieve something incredible. Um, the issue with with doing that, at least in current, well, the issue that we're trying to overcome in the project was to see how we can schedule tasks across potentially hundreds, thousands of cores hmm. in a way that wasn't going to mean that you had to have a huge chunk of those cores doing nothing but figure out how to arrange jobs across the rest of them. Yeah. Um, you know, if you've got, um, if you think about a company full of thousands of people, most of the, a, a huge chunk of those people will be taken up in management roles, figuring out what other people should do. Mm-hmm. And uh, the idea with the many core system and the, the, the biologically inspired side of that is that you don't need the management hierarchy. A core just will respond to stimuli that is being given either from other cores around it or, or from other things and do a, you know, compute a thing that needs to be computed. That's cool. Did you um, build up a system to test it in the end? Like, cause that sounds like something that would work in practice when you've got everything there, but until you can see it in front of you, you've got no clue. Yeah. So one of the PhD students was building a, a many core system um, using uh, Xilinx, I think. Yeah. And they built a, um, essentially a, a, their version was, I think about a hundred cores and they'd, they'd built a, um, essentially created a very simple version that was about eight cores for, for me to flash firmware onto. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was, you know, I was writing C code and, and pushing that onto a, uh, onto a, a CPU essentially. Yeah. Um, as well as doing some sort of Python mockups. Yeah. Simulate it rather than having all the hardware in front of you. Yeah. I did a lot of, I did a lot of simulation work before I got into the lab with the hardware um, just sort of look at how at like various options. Um, yeah. We'll see how it might work before you start playing with really fancy expensive equipment. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you're very unlikely to break it. You might, you might brick it and, but you just turn it off and, and reflash your firmware on it. So <laughs> no, it's just flashing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So you've done a fair amount of programming then I presume you enjoyed the programming modules earlier on. Um, do you do much programming now? Is that where you've decided to take your career? Then? Some, uh, some, yeah. My, my aim when I left uni was, was actually, I wanted to be a programmer when I left uni. Um, mm. But I realized that programming jobs, at least on the, from what I'd seen from either going to a couple of interviews or reading things like um, glass ceiling, glass door, um, the review thing for jobs and speaking oh, wow. to people who are programmers, I was like, this sounds rubbish. Um, <laughs> so, uh yeah, I I ended up in coming into this job. I gave my gave my CV to um to read the the recruiting agency, mm-hmm. and they and they recommended that I I come for an interview here. Um, came for an, an interview, and and the the two people that interviewed me, the CEO and the CTO, um, were both you know super friendly and uh, both really clearly passionate about what they do, and and both really intelligent. Um, and also <laughs> their interview style was. Let's have a technical conversation. Let's not drill this person and see what they do and don't know, um, yeah. and, and try to get specific answers to these specific questions. Uh, and I figured, well, it's in York. It's in a good part of York, and these people seem like they enjoy what they do, and it's not really anything to lose. So I, uh, I came and started working here, and yeah, it's been been great. <laughs> hey, you are still going. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, do you think that the interview style was? Um expected so is that like what you expected when you turned up because i know like you're saying that some well that you were not surprised but you you came across them like you were surprised by the interview technique yeah i found 
a lot of people, especially in bigger organizations where a big chunk of the interview is being done probably by someone who is not necessarily experienced in the job. Um, they'll have like, you know, they might have specific questions that HR have said, you need to ask these questions. And they might, you know, to a lot of engineering roles, some HR questions aren't really relevant, but you have to have an answer to them. And sometimes a technical question won't, some technical questions that again, they might have to have an answer to. Yeah. They'll just be completely out of your, out of your like comfort zone, out of, out of the knowledge that you have. Yeah, um, yeah. But that doesn't always mean that you're not going to be good at the job. You know, it might be some really weird niche question. And it's like, yeah, well, someone might know this if they'd learn it at uni, but that doesn't mean that they're going to be able to do this job. Yeah. Um, and they'll like drill down and like really try to get you to answer this question and like try to lead you through an answer. And it's like, listen, I just don't know the answer to the question. Yeah. Um, and it reflects badly on you. <laughs> yeah. And then it just makes you feel crap because, you know, you've struggled to answer this question and they've like, asked it over and over and over again and you're like oh i, I just don't know and then you know everything kind of goes downhill from there and so yeah we've uh, we've as i say we've just recruited a couple of new engineers and so i was trying to be kind of follow that um that style, style of just yeah. have a technical conversation you know the specifics of your knowledge especially in this role don't really matter because a lot of what we do is is quite specific and niche to what to the way that we do things mm-hmm um, so it's more like, do you have good based on knowledge? Like, do you know what Linux is? Can you use the terminal? Um, if you can do those things, then you've, you've got enough knowledge really for us to train you because yeah. we're going to have to train anyone that comes into this kind of role. It's really the same for any role. You know, you, very few roles, especially out of uni, hmm. you'll walk into and just start doing the job. You'll have to be shown the tools, the techniques, the styles. And as you learn those things, you learn the job. So. I think it's it's unfair of a lot of bigger companies to expect really specific technical knowledge from people who are just fresh out of uni because it's often going to be quite specific to that role. Yeah, and experience too. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely, yeah. I've heard of um, a, a weird example, which is like the opposite of what you just said, though, in media where they've put on the job application uh, experience using a certain piece of software. And you know how some people apply for jobs being like, oh, yeah, 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 I've, I'm good at this. I've used that. It's a piece of software that only they have the rights to use. So anyone that says that they've used it is lying. <laughs> and I suppose yeah, it's the same, same, but the opposite of what you've just said. Yeah. They, uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a famous tweet somewhere. Um, I can't remember this guy. This guy developed a framework for, I think it was Java or something like that. Yeah. Um, like he himself had developed it. Um, and there was a job advert being like, we expect you to have, it was like seven years of experience using this framework. And this guy retweeted it, like a screen grab or something of the job ad. And he's like, I only have five years experience of using this framework because I only created it five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and this company were advertising a job where they wanted seven years of experience in a thing that existed for only five. It's the same as the grad adverts where after two years experience doing something and you've just left uni. Like, Where's yeah, the experience like, we, come we, from? we want a grad, but we also want them to have two years experience. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I, I, you know, having not that long ago been a grad, um, I, I kind of aware of that when I was doing these interviews, because uh, it was myself doing the interviews for the, the new guys. And I was like, I don't want to drill down on people on and expect them to have a load of knowledge that it's just not feasible. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, even if you've covered it, you need can still just leave your brain straight away. Yeah. Yeah.
How did you get involved in We Are HA then? Like, so you said that you went through an agency. Why did you go to an agency? What What did you tell the agency to? Um, well, I was doing all sorts of stuff when I so I um I did a bit of traveling before I when I finished uni. Um, I went away to the to the states for a couple of months and then came back and I was like, right, well, I need to get a job. Um, <laughs> so I was I was kind of like looking on job boards, um, you know, looking through um through various various places. To, to find what kind of jobs and I'd applied for a few. Um, and during that process, I'd just kind of thrown my CV onto uh, the, like the online portals of a few recruiters. Um, mm. A few of them run me up and a lot of them will do like sort of preliminary interviews. They'll just sort of chat to you to see what you know. Um, and I guess I must've just told them that I was looking for an engineering role to do with computers um, and probably programming. And then, yeah, like a, a couple of weeks after that I was I was contacted by someone and they said we've got this in this there's this role if you're interested in it take a look at their take a look at their job spec uh, and let me know if you if you want to want to do an interview um so yeah I did did the interview and and because it's a small company it was turned around crazy fast like I think Wednesday it was it was here's the job spec what do you think uh Thursday was the interview and I started work on Monday <laughs> oh wow that's yeah. mental yeah, I mean, it was, it was great. Um, you know, I, I think I spent from coming back from traveling to to work to being in in work. It was less than a month, so yeah, that, that for me was was great. Um, especially because it worked out so well. Well, yeah, it's still there, still going strong. Yeah. So were you putting um, CVs out as well, like to places and looking around? Would um, would your job now be something that you're looking for anyway? Uh, was I was I putting CVs out to this this style of job? Yeah, yeah. Um, probably not actually, no. Um, I think what I was doing was more um, hands-on engineering. So programming, uh, you know, software development. Um, mm. You know, I, I applied to places like Rockstar and Leeds uh, yeah. to be an engine developer there. Um, applied to places like Mercedes-AMG um, to be an electronic engineer doing their, uh, yeah, building software for their, for, their, um, for their engines and their powertrains. Do you think um, that was um, lack of lack of experience? Um, do you think that was lack of awareness though? Um, like unis don't really push. Well, they don't really push a lot, like in terms of jobs. But they don't. The like the job roles, like what you've got here, isn't something that's high on the like awareness list. If you know what I mean. This this type of job is is becoming more niche because less people think they need it. There's there's not many companies that have a specific need for like a sysadmin style role. Mm. Um, but it's always going to be a necessary skill set. It's not really something that you learn at uni either. It's kind of like a you know you learn it on the job. Very little of what I did at uni, but maybe you know just general problem solving and logic, the kind of stuff that you learn doing an engineering degree. Yeah. Um, you know you kind of learn how to figure out engineering kind of problems. Um, not necessarily by explicitly being told it, but you like you kind of develop your own like problem solving mechanisms to to figure out logical pro- problems essentially um yeah. those kind of skills have been useful but nothing like there's no specific course where i'm like oh i learned this at uni um it, yeah like i don't think i think the some 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 aspects of like a comp sci degree a computer science degree you might learn these things hmm. um so the new guys that are coming on board with us they have got you know they have got experience using um uh, using web servers through their degree 
Um, right. But I'm going to imagine uh, that the skills that they have learned there are going to be not particularly applicable to what we do here. Yeah, um, again, specialist to your company there. Yeah, again, what we do is quite quite niche, and we do things in a quite a specific way. That means that a lot of the skills that we need are going to be learned in house. Mm-hmm. Is your job role now not yours specifically, but could if I didn't have my degree, would I be able to come and apply for a job, the same sort of job, and then work yep. up, or is it you have to have a degree to get into the team kind of level? Not at all. No, um, our CTO didn't go to uni. Um, he's better than the rest of us that did <laughs> um yeah he he um when we were advertising our role we were not explicitly advertising it to brads um i i, I you know i created the job spec and, and created the job essentially the job title and mm. was quite specific in not wanting it to be a graduate engineer and um, so we, we marked it up as a uh, as a junior engineer because realistically the skill set that someone might have in this for this specific role would would actually likely be probably better if they didn't go to uni and if they'd done you know maybe two years um working in in a kind of a similar role yeah um, true transferable skills rather than just learn stuff going in yeah yeah you know a lot of it a lot of a lot of what we do on the sysadmin side which is this sort of operational engineering side of things yeah is, is stuff you sort of learn over time and you you kind of just the only way to do it is to is to go away and, and actually do it you know get involved break something and, and fix it yeah. um and it, there's you you know there are online courses and there are certifications that you can do that will help you sort of have a good understanding of where things are and what to do and how to start resolving problems but the, the best way is to get stuck in especially in this especially in this role mm. um especially in this kind of work yeah so yeah, um of course we we wouldn't we i don't think we would ever really look for someone or we would never reject someone from a role because they didn't have a degree. I think we all we all here agree that that would be a ridiculous reason to reject from, from a role, especially if they had the skills and the knowledge. You know, that's much more much more useful to me. Um, yeah. I'm, sure, I'm sure loads of people come out of uni um, having no idea how to do anything. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so. No. So you, you work in, as you mentioned, you do quite a, you've got quite a bit of an input into the recruitment side over there. I mean, I know it's a small company, so it's not going to be hundreds of people coming through. But yeah, essentially, we're recruiting for my team, so it made sense for me to re- for me to be involved in the interview. Um, no, nope, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it, the the interview is done by me and and our and our HR coordinator. Um, so she she was there to make sure that the right questions outside of te- technical stuff got asked. Mm. Um, yeah, and you're just making sure that the right like person for the team, then yeah. Yeah, pretty much, you know, making sure that they are not fairly normal people, um, or weird in the right kind of way, <laughs> um, and that their their technical skills are are sort of up to scratch. Um, you know, as I said earlier, it's, it's more about their baseline knowledge and having sort of a technical conversation. You know, talking about what they did at uni in, in specific modules, or talking about what they've done maybe in, in previous jobs, and making sure that they're going to have those skills um, or that base to build on when we start teaching them stuff. Um, yeah. You now knowing on the inside, having been what well, you're the interviewer, what sort of advice would you give someone coming in um to the interview? Like would it I know people say bring bring along things that you've worked on or work on projects at home so you can show them off. But like what sort of what sort of insight would you give there? Um you need to show that you're a person outside of just engineering. <laughs> um 
which it seems like immediately counterintuitive advice. It's like, you know, have, have a life outside of engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, it really helps show that you're going to fit into a team. You're as much as you might be doing engineering projects, you're also going to be involved with other people. You know, you're yeah. going to be talking, you're going to be talking to other people in the team and, and communication in an office as the same as, as the same as it is in a uni lab. You're not just talking about the work. You're, you know, talking about what you did at the weekend. You're talking about what you're going to do that evening. Um, you know, people are people. They'll talk about stuff that isn't work. Hmm. Um, so someone, someone who is interviewing is interviewing you is going to want to see that you're not um, just a robot. Yeah, just a robot. Um, and and a lot of jobs. This job is especially we talk to clients quite a lot. So you need to show that you're again capable of talking to people, um, and you've got interests outside of. Um, just what you're doing at uni um that's not to say that an interest in tech an interest in engineering outside of uni isn't a bad thing hmm. um but you know if you're if your entire life is just academia yeah that's a good it's, point it's not, it's, not, <laughs> it's not great for it's not great for um for a recruiter you know the best way to start an interview is to talk about interests outside of the technical stuff it's a great way to break the ice um that's true it's enthusiasm as well isn't it yeah, that's that's the next thing really is is to be enthusiastic about what you're doing. Um, one of the key things that essentially the two guys that we just brought on, their role is going to be support um, mm. and supporting clients, and it was important to us that they were enthusiastic about doing that job rather than just getting a job. If you're if you're applying for a job because you need a job, it's understandable, right? But um, if you're applying for a job just because you need a job, it's going to come through. Yeah. If you're applying for a, if you're applying for a role because you find that role or what the company do interesting and you like want to be involved in it, hmm. then that's going to come across. And most of the people that I've spoken to who are involved in recruiting would rather employ someone who is you know good enough to do a job, but they're they're always going to choose the person who is going to fit in with the team and. And is passionate about the, the role, yeah, but maybe needs definitely. a little bit more training than mm. someone who's going to come in and kind of not be that interested, but might be able to do the job if they if they wanted to. Um, most people are going to employ the first person, not the second person. Um, we we describe it as someone who smells right. It's <laughs> kind of like hard, <laughs> kind of hard to put your finger on exactly what it is, but you know, you start talking to someone, and you know they they're interesting and they've got an interest in the company and they've got an interest in the role and um, their technical knowledge is enough. And it's kind of like you balance all those things, but none of those things you can really, you can't put numbers on them. You know, you can't quantify them. Um, so it's kind of like, yeah, they smell right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Cause you can't quantify a smell. Can you? There you go. I'm sure you could. I'm sure a chemist could, but <laughs> well, bad and good, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, that's, that's fair. Yeah. Yeah, so it's just I think the most important thing is just just to be interested in what you're applying to rather yeah. than find a job and then become interested in it be interested in it yeah of course otherwise you just dig yourself a hole anyway <laughs> yeah it'll come across it, it'll come across to everyone um and even if you did get the job you're not going to enjoy it because it's not something you're interested in you know it's, you spend eight hours a day five days a week doing the job if you're not if you're not interested in it already, then there's a good chance that you'll just become less interested in it and start to hate it. Yeah, um, it means that eventually you're going to be miserable doing what you do. Not what you want. Not not a good no. way to live. <laughs> no. 
So what projects is it that you work on outside of work? And you said that you need to have a life outside of work. So, you know, taking you as an example here. <laughs> Um, I, I do loads of cycling um, and a bit of running and stuff like that uh, and, and just sort of generally activities. Um, in terms of like engineering kind of projects, um, one of the things that I've done recently, last summer I, I built a website. Um, I created a big, I created like a, a, a route around the York Moors, like a mountain biking route hmm. and uh, built a website, put some information on there, plotted all the route out and, and put it all up uh, and then used something called Docker to, to deploy that to a server. Um, what's happening docker is um an engine where you get your code your application code so whether that's a web app or a website or whatever it is that you're going to run um i know some people have run things like um windows 98 you can get a container for okay (laughs) um all kinds of weird stuff uh like cryptocurrency software runs in it sometimes um you name it you can run it in docker Okay. Um, the idea is you basically take your code, your application code, and any dependencies, so operating system, uh, any packages that it relies on, hmm. um, all that kind of stuff, and you just kind of get it all together. You put it in a, in a box, a virtual box called a container, hmm. and then you run it anywhere. So if you're going to go and develop it, if you're going to go and develop your application on a Mac, for example, on iOS, hmm. um, but you might end up running it on a Linux system or even a Windows server, it doesn't matter where it's going to end up running because you develop it in the exact same environment, that container that you're going to run it on because you're just going to take your container and then, um, and just shove it onto whatever server and Docker kind of does all the extraction and abstraction to run it without having, without you having to think about, is it going to run differently on this different architecture or this different operating system? Okay. So like Java in terms of it's got that virtual machine layer, which runs on everything the same and you develop for that. Yeah, yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah. It's essentially, it's not quite, yeah. It's um, <laughs> it's both more and less simple than that. <laughs> oh, great. Um, <laughs> it, you just, all, all you do is you, you take everything, you mm-hmm. box it up, and then you just put that onto a server um, or a couple of servers if you need to run multiple instances of it. Um, and it's it it runs, the container will run nothing but what you need. Um, and Java kind of is a language as well. So yeah, kind of stuck, stuck to using Java, um, but in the same way that Java runs in its kind of in the JVM, um, you kind of yeah you, you trap your application to running in that container. Right, okay. and then that's accessible just from accessing the server like normal, like through a, yeah, a web app or through your terminal or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So then all you do is you you tell your operating system, your server operating system, that um, you know you'll you'll have an ingress port, so um, the usual website ports are 80 and 443 mm-hmm. so if you go to you know facebook.com you're you're accessing a server probably through well probably not through that because they're probably doing it in some weird way um but you're going over port 80 or port 443 and you basically tell your server that you want to direct those ports to a port on your container um and then docker sets up a bunch of um like internal networks and it'll pass just traffic through to the container and then from the outside world it just looks like you're accessing a website but inside it's like just a whole network inside the server yeah it, well i mean it's again it's less less complicated than that you've just got a network that says take the traffic from this port and push it to this container so it's just a giant um, switch then yeah partly so this is why docker is like both more and less complicated um, right okay because all you do is you say your command is literally like docker run this thing and then it turns it on and does all the networking for you 
without you having to really get too involved, unless you're doing something more complicated, uh, such as running something called a Docker Swarm, which is where you've got multiple servers running multiple things. Um, <laughs> it's one of these things that can become really powerful if you need it to be, but is also at the root of it actually quite simple. Um, it's you take your code, you take any dependencies, you put it in a box, and then you put it somewhere for other people to see. Okay. Is that something that you've worked on? You worked on as like a project because you use it in work, or is it something you've seen yes. and you've been interested in and gone? The first. So the first. Um, we use it. We use it in work. Um, a lot of the stuff that we develop here is done through Docker. Hmm. Um, so we can develop. Like, we can literally, literally the use case that I described. We develop it on a Mac, and then we we use it on Linux. So um, there's no concerns about dependencies. We just get all the dependencies and we develop in the exact environment that it's going to be used in. Oh, I see. I see. Um, as well as a couple of our clients use it as well to do the same thing. They develop and then they push their applications to to um, a, a web server that runs Docker. Mm. No, cool, cool, yeah. All right, now your last question before we move on to the random questions. Um, what's the most exciting piece of technology or project that you've been able to work on or with? That's a good question. Um, going to an enterprise data center is quite interesting, um, especially the first time. So you know, where all the servers are running. Okay, um, so if you break down that a little bit, uh, is there multiple of those across the UK or is it just a couple of them? I mean, guess yeah, yeah, there, there's, yeah, there's, it's, the internet runs out of data centers. Um, they're just it's pieces of infrastructure that usually look pretty uh, innocuous um, and they're buildings that are full of all kinds of crazy tech um, that most people never even consider. Um, it's basically just stacks of servers. You know, everyone's probably seen them in, in you know films and stuff where you have big cabinets full of ceiling full of flashing lights. Yeah. Um, it's basically big rooms across multiple floors full of those, um, which sounds super boring. But when you're in there, you've got you know these cabs that are all doing stuff. They're all full of servers. They're all wired up usually to, well, in any decent data center, they're wired up to two distinct power systems so you'll have them um, two different power grids going into this, into the building mm -hmm. uh, so the national grid will be like very separate national grid plugged into the building in two different two different ways uh, so if one half that half of the national grid goes down the other half is still there so the server's still running right okay uh, that's complicated. This, yeah right and that's just <laughs> the power um <laughs> and there's they also have things like um so power you've mm -hmm. then got um redundant power supplies so if your national grid stops working altogether, they'll have, again, this is any good data center, which is ours is, knock on wood. Um, <laughs> you know, we pay a lot of money for it. So, uh, Worth having. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and then, so then you've got like big, huge battery banks that will turn on if the power grid fails, hmm. like national, if national power grid fails, um, their big battery banks turn on so that the servers never turn off. Okay. And then, you know, those batteries will last for maybe half an hour. Uh, in that time, it gives them enough time to turn on their two massive diesel generators um, for which they've got days worth of fuel for. Um, so like even just the power is so like um, overbuilt and redundant. You know, mm. if, one thing, if one thing completely fails, there's another thing to take its place. And if that completely fails, there's another thing to take its place. And every, la every layer is like doubled up. And there's a similar thing for things like networking, you know, there's, there's two different um, internet backbones coming into the building and, you know, they, they're 
wired into all the servers. Every server's got two power supplies. It's all every server's got two different networking structures. All just um, in case. Yeah. So if one goes down, there's always another one to take its place. Okay. Um, and when you see all these things in the building, it's 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 fascinating um, because you're in one building that is logically two different buildings. You know, every server exists essentially logically twice because um, there's two of everything going into it. Uh, so if one thing fails, there's another one to take its place. Uh, you know, these things like million pounds, millions mm -hmm. of pounds worth of infrastructure, and it's fascinating to see how it all works. Um, all right. Well, what would happen if it did go down? Uh, um, well, we have disaster recovery built in. Um, so this is, again, another layer of protection. Um, everything in this industry is backed up and redundant um, and backed up again. Um, it's all, you know, belt braces. You, you name it, we've got backup of it. Um, right. So we have we have various disaster recovery protocols. Um, if things do go completely wrong, um, we have all of our all of the server configuration exists not just on the server. So so all of our client servers, they've all got specific configurations and stuff. Hmm. Um, so if the data center if the data center just stopped existing. Um, we'd be able to turn on a bunch of servers that look exactly the same, okay. full of all, full of all closely the same data. You know, it might be a few hours old, depending on when the last backup was taken, um, depending on the level of security a client might have paid for. Right. Um, <clears throat> and we'd be able to spin up essentially a very similar looking data center to, to what might have just disappeared fairly quickly. Um, mm. Uh, it's, so finding it it's, being as bad as it could be then really whatever it is that's gone down you need to just reduce the impact of it kind of yeah pretty much the the what a lot of our clients essentially are paying us to do is to make sure that their web server is always on and running no matter what happens um you know the only thing we can't stop is if the internet goes down in the uk um in which case there's not you know no one can access the internet anyway <laughs> yeah so it doesn't matter if the data's there or not <laughs> exactly yeah um the data would still exist it just wouldn't be accessible <laughs> all right yeah no i see that's that is pretty cool to me though <laughs> yeah <laughs> to work with that yeah i mean you know um yeah just the, the fact that how, how everything is so redundant and backed up um is is fascinating um and yeah seeing those seeing those um seeing data centers for the first time is is interesting Second and third time, it's less interesting. Um, and you realize that when you go to a data center, the chances are you're probably going to be in there for like 10 hours. Um, and they are super air conditioned. So the air is super dry and both warm and cold. Um, so, like this, so they've got servers have got hot sides and cold sides. Um, so the middle of rows is air conditioned and sealed from the outside of rows. And then the servers will suck air in from the air conditioned side and blow out hot air out the back. So you go through a door from like quite a hot environment into this air conditioned environment where it's quite cold. Uh, and it, you do that a couple of times and it starts to screw your body over. And then you realize that you've been in really dry air for like 10 hours. And obviously there's no, no food or drink. So there's, there's no water to drink whilst you're in there. Ew, that's <laughs> nasty. <laughs> so for the, first, the first time you go in, you're like, oh, this is really cool. I've never been in a data center before. And then, you know, you've been there for five hours and you're like, oh God, we need to done. It's like, oh no, we've still got to move a load of servers around and re rewire a bunch of stuff. And <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How long till that becomes robotic, do you think? Uh, some data centers are. Um, it's, yeah, 
mean, you clearly love it so much. You know, <laughs> there's, there's, yeah, I mean, yeah, we don't have to go into the data center very often. Um, right. Because a lot of what we do is is on our cluster, which is which is there, it exists. Um, it's built in this redundant fashion that means that usually there's not much that needs to be done. Most of what we're doing with it is is expanding it and just you know adding in a node or two. Hmm. Um, and you know if we have to go to the data center, it's usually it's one or two engineer for a full day. Um, so we lose that engineer from support, which is oh. not ideal. Right. <laughs> um, so we try to reduce the amount of time we spend there. Um, so we don't spend a huge amount of time there. Um, you know, if, if if something has broken to the point where we need to go to the data center, then then that's a that's a major thing. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, things becoming robotic, I believe it is. Um, streamlining those processes is something that big companies like you know IBM and Dell are keen to do because mm. it's a service that they can then sell to people like us. Yeah, they're the bigger players. Yeah, you know, we we don't we obviously don't make our own servers. We buy servers from from those kind of companies in mm. terms of hardware. Um, and then uh, you know, so if they're going to sell us a solution, that means that we don't have to go to uh, don't have to ever go to a data center again. We'd probably buy on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, I believe you can buy those kind of solutions, but they start at about a million pounds. Oof, that's that's <laughs> steep. But then I suppose the company's paying for it. They're that kind of size, aren't they? So yeah, if you need that kind of redundancy. Um, but then, if you know, if you're a player like Facebook or, or Netflix or Google, you own your own data center, and then oh, you're yeah, paying, so. then you're paying hundreds of millions of pounds for your data center. Yeah, so what's a million pounds to have someone to walk in for you? Yeah, exactly. Well, I'll have people who work there twenty four seven. So, yeah, but they're like, I mean, the, raisins. I, I mean, it's not probably not an individual person who works there twenty four seven. I hope they've got shifts. <laughs> They just make a person work at 24-7 until they just drop dead and then they replace them with someone else. Well, I'll just brush them up. they will be dust. Exactly. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. Oh, man. Okay, uh, moving on to some trivia questions then, just to, to wrap everything up, I suppose. Um, so I warn you. I warn you, my, my, I've seen the last question you've got on here, and as I said earlier, my ability to do analog is was weak at best and is now long forgotten. <laughs> well, that makes it more of an interesting uh, response. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> So what's the greatest lesson that you've ever learned? Oh, I missed that question when I was reading this. Um, I have no, absolutely no idea how to answer that question. No, take it how you want to take it. That's the interesting thing about the question. Most people don't know what they're doing. <laughs> really? <laughs> they're, yeah, most people Most people are... Uh, you ask, if you think someone's, think someone's going to have an answer to a question, the chances are they won't have the answer to that question. The, best, the, the, the chances are they're going to go and and search them not online for it. Um, All right, that's that's an interesting yeah. one. I didn't expect you to say that, but no. you were, you know, if you if you go through like a programmer Reddit or Linux Reddit, or you speak to programmers and, and sysadmins, um, ninety percent of the stuff they do, they're googling first. Um, it's yeah, don't don't remember everything, just remember what to search for. No fair, <laughs> good skill to have, like. If you, if you can search the internet for an answer, you can answer any question. You can solve any problem. <laughs> exactly. Between you and the internet, we know everything. <laughs> there you go. Yep. Um, all right, if you had infinite resources given to you right now, what would you do? Like, what would you start or build? What, or... What, what kind of level project are we talking about? <laughs> as big or as small as you want. You've got infinite resources, man. <laughs> uh, I, I'm very concerned about climate change. Uh, okay. So I'd probably, probably start to resolve some of those issues. 
Well, what sort of angle would you go at? Uh, good question. Um, God, I should have done my, should have done my, uh, done my homework on that one. I probably had probably had a good good place to start. Ah, maybe try, maybe, maybe try to swing public opinion on nuclear power. <laughs> All right, that's bold on, but yeah, cool. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I suppose you could host the website now if you, if you know if you got a little bit in. Um, I, don't I, don't think, I don't think a website I could produce would be uh, any better than probably a load that already exists. <laughs> I'll just get a 3D model on it, you know. With a nuclear power station. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's your favourite technology metaphor that's ever been used like in education or someone telling you a problem because you deal with uh, people's issues with tech? Um, most Most things in technology are like a flow of one thing or another whether it's you know analog which is a flow of electrons right mm. um or whether it's um digital in which case it's just a flow of data and digital can be you know a little digital circuit through to um the internet which is just flows of data you know it's everything's uh, unless you're dealing with like quantum mechanics in which case well yeah not well, it's just a lot of rubbish um <laughs> It's not. It's not a flow. Things just exist, and then they don't exist, and they might exist somewhere else. Um, <laughs> yeah, most things are just like flows of data or flows of something else. So it's solving problems is just a case of you know follow the follow the trail. Uh, you know, a lot of what we do here is you know there's an issue with a website or whatever yeah. or, or a web server. You just figure out where the issue starts, and then where's it going next, and where's it going after that. You know, what system is what systems is that piece of data passing through and at one of those nodes there's going to be a problem hmm. well someone will have discovered it at some point won't they and i suppose it's tracing it backwards yeah it's just just a case of you know if a user comes to us and says i'm having a problem with um this website you go all right well, where's it starting it's starting on their computer and they're making a request to the website is the request coming back okay maybe it's not maybe it's not even hitting the server um and uh, you know it's that's just a flow of information the flow goes from you making the request and it hits the server and the server's then got to do things like, you know, read PHP scripts, access the database, and then gather all that information together, pass it through a web server, maybe pass it through um, some caching, maybe pass it through a web application firewall or another mm -hmm. proxy. And, you know, you're just following, following the data, following the request. And, you know, that's, that's the same in, in, um, in pretty much any, any problem solving really, or any, any problem solving that is usually involves technology. Um, yeah, I suppose that's what yeah. you look for in interviews as well, isn't it? Whether people can follow follow the train. Yeah, you know that's that's one of the things that I, I picked up whilst I was at uni. I was talking earlier about what's that mechanism for solving problems, um, and that's kind of the mechanism that I, you know, a lot of engineers will pick up is is it's just a case of following, you know, follow the trail. See where see where things stop working. Um, if if something stopped working, start pulling things out until it becomes much more bare bones and see if it still works. Yeah, crack out the multimeter and see what stopped. Exactly. Yeah, you know, you take a multimeter and you know you measure voltages over various components or measure current at various points in a circuit, and if it's and eventually you'll find somewhere on that circuit where those readings aren't what they should be. Mm, things have stopped. Um, yeah, yeah, it's like. Well, suddenly there's no voltage over this. There's no voltage drop over this component. 
Well, there's a problem. The component might be broken. <laughs> yep. Or you've got the wrong component. Um, and you, it's just following, you know, you're just following a flow there. You're just following, you know, if you've, if you've got, um, you know, digital display, like a um, nine, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven segment display. <laughs> <laughs> if you've got a seven segment display that you're expecting to read something on the end of a circuit and it's really got garbage, then, you know, you go, all right, well, first of all, is my segment segment display broken? If that's working fine, then you go to your next component and you say, what's the input voltage to it or whatever. And yeah. if that's right, then you go back another one and you go back another one and, and eventually you'll find, well, hopefully you'll find something that's broken along the way. Otherwise you're sat there scratching your head like, well, something, something imaginary is wrong. <laughs> yeah, either that or you've got a ghost in your circuit somewhere. You know, gremlins. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Uh, if you're a diode, what type of diode would you be and why? Oh, pass. I have no idea. <laughs> uh, uh, no worries. The, the, the only one I have got any, like, the knowledge of is an LED. Um, just because, you know, what, what, once upon a time I knew what a Xenia and a, and a switching diode were. But um, not, since, not since I think I've been in labs with Dave Pierce. Oh, what a man. <laughs> <laughs> He's a wizard, honestly. You know, those people I was talking about earlier who are, who are unbelievably good at analog engineering yeah he's the guy that i had in mind he's like honestly he's amazing isn't he <laughs> yeah just to uh clarify that there for our listeners um dave pierce is the analog and um your analog electronics and physics lecturer in the university of york yeah and just just finally then um before we finish off um what's the biggest piece of advice that you'd give to a young engineer now have an interest in what you're doing as <laughs> you know i said it earlier um if, if you're not interested in engineering <laughs> then why are you doing it <laughs> yeah it's probably not for you um you, whether it's whether it's a personal project or whether it's a career thing or whatever it is if you're doing something that you don't have an interest in then you're probably not going to be very good at it because you're not going to want to do it and you know people people figure it out conversely if you're really interested in what you're doing and you're not very good at it people will figure that out and they'll help you be better at it because the chances are they're going to be passionate about it too. Yeah. And people are passionate about things. They want to, sh- they want to share things. Um, and in, you know, in engineering, the thing that they're sharing is probably knowledge. Um, so, you know, if you're you know, a junior engineer and, or you're just coming out of, just coming out of uni looking for a job, look at things that you're passionate about because it'll come across, you know, don't, don't be scared to show that you're passionate about something. It's easy to be, you know, sort of try to be cool about things and be like, oh, it's interesting. Um, but, you know, let, let, you, let, your passion, let your passion come through because if you've got a genuine interest and it, come, it, it will come across, then people will be much more open to sharing information and knowledge and, and, and helping you. Hmm. Um, yeah, as I said earlier, something that I was interested in in hiring is someone who wants to do the job rather than someone who just kind of wants a job. I want to hire someone who wants to do the job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, if, if you, you're in, you're in, you're in industry now, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, I imagine that there's probably people you have interacted with during that who you can kind of tell they're not that interested in doing their job. Um, yeah. And you, know, you don't want to work with us. You don't really want to interact with those people professionally because it's, it's your probably chances are you're going to have a harder time either learning from that person or working with that person. No, exactly. Um, 
and to, to a similar extent in, in group projects at uni, you know, if you're, if you're doing a group project and someone on that group is not interested in what you're doing, you're like, oh, working with this person is just infinitely harder. And yeah. sometimes those group projects are easier to do by yourself if you're interested in that thing and that other person isn't because oh, all they're doing is just dragging everything back. You know, that if you're passionate about, about something, then people will realize. Yeah, you so might get stuck in, aren't you? Be interested in what you're doing. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, we've spoken about a bit about your career, about your progression. Uh, we learned a little bit about data centers and a few bits to do with uh, We Are Hey yeah. Jay. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us. I'll uh, yeah, speak to you soon. Yeah, cheers.